we're gonna we're gonna jump we're gonna jump right in um, uh, to what we're what we're doing a conversation that we're having um, up until Easter. Um, so if you if you're kind of just jumping in with us or you, you forgot where we're at, we're going through the Gospel of Mark together, and which is one of my favorite gospels um, all throughout the Bible because I, I I tend to think of myself as someone that's just like just get to the facts, right? Like um, I don't know if you're if some of you are gonna be storytellers in the room. So you'll come up with like creative ways, illustrations to like communicate a point. And then there's the rest of us that are like, just spit it out. What, it is, what is it that you want to say? Just give me the facts. I'm that way. And that's why I appreciate the gospel of Mark is that Mark wrote in a very clear and concise way. He, he's someone that just was very direct. I'm just going to tell you the things that you need to know. If you want to get more into some illustrations and you want to think a little bit more, dream a little bit more, go read John. John, John will kind of get it from a different way, but this is who I am. And so I can't think of a better way for us as a community as we, as we lean into Easter. And by the time we get to Easter, our goal, Lord willing, is that, that we'll be at Resurrection in Mark and we'll also be on Resurrection Sunday. And so we'll be wrapping up Mark together on Easter. But we're going chapter by chapter. Um, and, and our goal is very simple and it's very straightforward. Um, uh, and this pertains to me as well. I, I, I'm hoping and praying that, that we as a church, by the time we get to Resurrection Sunday, is that our faith then will be stronger than it's ever been. That's my prayer for our church. As we'll look back, at what's the date today? January 12th. Um, come Easter Sunday, we'll have greater faith then than we did today. And, and to me, that is an exciting thing. That's an adventure to live. Um, that's truly leading to the abundant life that Jesus has for us um, and, and believing that, that God has so much for your life. He has so much more he wants to do. We can never get enough. We can never stop growing. There's Faith can always be built um, in our lives. And so um, I can't think of a better place to focus our attention than on the writings of Mark. And so, um, you know, Mark, the way he wrote um, his gospel, he didn't, he didn't read it because he 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 didn't write it because he just wants us to hear it today, and 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 have this conclusion. Oh, Jesus was just a really great guy. Um, yeah, like I admire Jesus a lot. Um, if 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 that's how we interpret the life and ministry of Jesus, then the gospel writers, and it's my um, conclusion as well, is we've missed the point of Jesus' life, right? So. We don't want to just sit back after we hear this and be like, wow, I admire Jesus. What we want to do and what we want to, and how I want to leave this place this morning is replicate his life. All right, I, I want like, I want to do that. I want to be like him. I want to spend time with him. And so I, I think that's what um, Mark is after. As we talked about living daily in the presence of Jesus. This is, this is, this is what studying gospels and getting into the Bible ought to do within us. It shouldn't just be, that was a great message, or that was new. It should actually lead us into the presence of God, right? And so that, to me, is the goal for us. And so we've, we've, we've decided to kind of help with our church with that a little bit. Some of you are already doing this. Many of you are already probably doing this in many different ways. But, but we see that Jesus had some spiritual rhythms that he lived by. And so when we talk about disciplines, which is an awful word in the church, right? Nobody likes to do discipline. So I like to call them spiritual rhythms, or practices or whatever it may be. We don't do them because we say, oh, let's, this is just something we ought to do. We do them because we see Jesus and, and, and we want to be like him. And so what we see in, throughout the gospel is that Jesus had uh, daily spiritual rhythms. He knew his Bible. He understood his Bible, which would have been the Hebrew Bible during the time. So our, one of our asks during this time and hopefully continuing on is that you would read your Bible every day. And so we've, we've created a Mark reading plan. Um, Casey will talk about that a little bit more, but I hope you've been doing it. I hope you've been stepping into it. We've tried to make it as simple and practical as possible. Um, and it pushes us back a little bit against just thinking, I got to read a whole chapter. Uh, and the more I read, the better off I am. Um, sometimes my devotion life just looks like a phrase. Reading through Psalms and just stopping over one word and, and, and meditating over that. So we've tried to make this as concise as possible and manageable as possible. We're asking you to pray every day or whatever. Just pray. Just practice the spiritual rhythm of prayer in your life. And then I'm also calling and asking our church to escape every day. Retreat. Get away from the noise. Put away the headphones. Turn off the phone. Get away from the crowds. Whatever, whatever that looks like in your life, um, whether it's for five minutes or for an hour, find time every day to escape 
what Jesus did. And then last, second to last is to serve. Look for practical ways to serve beyond serving at our family center, beyond serving things that we do here as a community. Those are great. We'll continue to do them. But regular practices, really regular daily rhythms of serving people around you in easy, um, manageable ways. And then last is to speak up. When the time is right, Jesus was always ready to give an answer for the hope that he had. And, and for us, I want to be that same type of person, right? If I'm practicing these daily rhythms, I think God will lead me into relationships with people that, that will require me to speak up and tell people about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And so be ready for that. It's a fun thing. It's an adventure um, to see the way that God might open up doors and honor your faith and really trust you with people that he loves dearly. And so I'm really looking forward to this new year. I believe God has some good things in store for you and for this church. But again, we want to be people that our faith is being built. We want to be people where our eyes are, are fixed on Jesus first and foremost. Are you with me? Did you get enough coffee this morning? All right. I look a little bit more cheery, huh? Will you? Thank you. Thank you for that. All right, if you have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be cruising, okay? Um, I, I, I don't know how else to preach Mark chapter 3 than actually having to read the whole chapter. I'm sorry. I'm actually going to read an entire chapter this morning. Um, sometimes the text will allow me not to. I don't feel like I need to, but this time there's just one main theme that, I, that, that, that this, this chapter really gets after that I think the best way to do justice um, for this specific passage is to read the whole thing. So I'm going to read quickly. Are you with me? Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Amazing. Immediately. The Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against Jesus and how they might kill him. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and they also followed from Judea, from Jerusalem, Idume, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Then he had healed many. All who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain, summoned those he wanted, and then and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James, son of Zebedee, and to his brother John. He gave the names Bogernus, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also went to betray him. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, so they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they sent out to restrain him, because they said, he's out of his mind. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said that he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but be finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven from all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around and they told him, Look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking you, asking for you. He replied to them, who are my, bro my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. All right, I wanted to take the time to read 
all of chapter three, because there's one major theme that I want to lean into this morning um, that I believe is present in the ministry and life of Jesus that I think is worth unpacking. The theme that I see over and over and over again is community. So that's, that's something that we see for Jesus everywhere he went. Now, community is a really broad word. Would you agree? There's all sorts of community out there, right? doesn't matter what you're looking for, what hobby you might have, what interest group you might want to be a part of. Um, community is essentially pretty easy to find. Um, and so each interaction that Jesus has, that Mark records in, in chapter 3, Jesus was around some sort of community. He was constantly surrounded by people. And so Mark uses a lot of different words to describe the kind of community that was surrounding Jesus. He first says Pharisees. We're familiar with what Pharisees were for the most part. They were religious leaders whose job was to uphold the the Jewish law. So essentially they were the religious police. And they would go around keeping an eye on people, holding people accountable, and then disciplining people that weren't upholding the, the Jewish law. Somewhere around 600 of them during the day. Are you glad we don't, as a church, go about this the same way today? Some of you can probably use it. Just kidding. He goes on to mention scribes. Um, scribes were uh, thought of, they, some of them could have been Pharisees, but for the most part, they were people who had knowledge of the law and could draft legal documents. So if you wanted to get married or you wanted to buy land or you wanted to get a divorce or you wanted to get a loan, you would have to go see scribes and they would help you do that, okay? So these were people that, that Jesus was also surrounded by. They were following Jesus in many different places. They were the brainiacs of the day. They were the wizards of the day. Um, and they were people that when they spoke, the rest of the community listened. So they held a lot of weight within the community. The next is, he uses the word multitudes. And he talks about the crowds, which spoke of the general public, from, from all different kinds of towns, all different kinds of villages. He uses the word, the apostles, Right? And this is how he describes the kind of community that had the unique privilege to be handpicked by Jesus to go and do the things that Jesus did. In a sense, these were the people that Jesus would hand the keys of the kingdom to and say, everything I've done, I now commission you to go do. Right? So these were handpicked people by Jesus. And then, and, then, and then Mark closes the chapter by talking about Jesus' own mother, brother, and sisters as the community that, that essentially raised Jesus, the people that would have known him the best, um, and the people that, that, that um, were most intimate with him, his own personal family. So we can see that Jesus is constantly surrounded by community, every which way. Um, he was surrounded with people that, that knew him and that he knew. He was surrounded by people that knew of him, but he didn't know anything about. And he was even surrounded by people that didn't know him, but he knew, hence the man with the shriveled hand. He knew what that man had no idea who Jesus was, but Jesus knew him. And so there's a broad thing happening here with community. And so my question that I I wrote down that I I think we have to ask is what's, what's Mark's point here? What's he trying to make here? What, what's his point of telling us all this? I think it comes down to two things. First and foremost, how does this relate to you? Community is around you all the time. It is. And there are also studies saying, We've never been surrounded with so many pe- by so many people at one given moment, and we are also the most isolated we've ever been. Right? So isolation does not mean there's no community around you. They're, they're two separate things. So what we're getting at is that community is all around you all the time. Number two, you have to exercise some wisdom as to which community you let in and around your life. Community is everywhere. People are everywhere. So what kind of people are we going to let surround our lives? What kind of people are we going to let in our lives? And so just, just think about this for a second. How, how many different kinds of community are you a part of in a given week? I would, I would venture to guess the average in here is probably somewhere around three or four. You have your own maybe personal family. You've got your work. You've got friends. If you're in a relationship with somebody, you're married, you've got kids, neighbors, Right, like they're like the list of people that you go around, and there'll be crowds that maybe you bump into at different places, or people that you know, but you don't really know. It's a coffee shop or something like that. There's forms of community all around us. We're all part of a number of different ones. That doesn't even mention the social media community that many of us are a part of and know. Right. So there's no shortage of community in our day to day. But where there is a short of today, shortage of today, that I want to press into a little bit, and this doesn't just mean outside the church. 
It's an epidemic in the church and it's depth of community. Depth of community. Think, think about that for a second. And if we're, if we're actually going to be people that, that, that make wise decisions about the kind of community we give ourselves to, we have to understand and give ourselves a little grace that maybe that just means it's not realistic to give myself, to give equal parts of myself to every single community that I'm a part of. Because if we're giving equal parts to every single part of community that we're in, we're, we're, we're forsaking the most important thing, and that's depth of community. That's genuine relationships with people. We, we can only spread ourselves so thin, right? We can only give ourselves to so many things. And so I think Mark is using the life and ministry of Jesus here to show how Jesus actually dealt with this. How Jesus actually lived his life constantly surrounded by people in many different forms of community, but still lived an abundant life and still experienced depth of relationship. And so I think we have some things to, to learn. So um, I want to talk about that. Um, look at Mark 3, verses 32 through 35. Um, uh, was able to be around the crowds, right? Um, Pharisees and even his own family knew um, who his real community was. He knew the people he was going to serve with and invest into. And we get to verse 32, and I, I think this is really important. And this is Jesus completely redefining community. And I'm going to kind of talk about that in the form of family in just a second, okay? But this is the start, and Jesus finishes it with this. Look at, look at verses 32 through 34. The crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around, he said, here's my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother. So what's Jesus not doing here? Don't misunderstand him. He's not saying, kick your family to the curb. Family's not important once you become a part of the church. That's a cult, right? That's like what, Messages of a cult. Watch any documentary on any cult. What do they do? Isolate you from your family, right? So Jesus is not telling you to abandon your family and run to the church. That's absolutely not the message. Don't let anybody ever tell you that. His message is actually the opposite here. He is saying, invest yourself into the church as you would invest yourself into your family. So, so Jesus was known in this community. Jesus' family was known in this community. So Jesus is already like, when they're like, hey, you're there outside to eat. We know. I know. I know my family. They're my blood. It's my mom. It's my brother. It's my dad. I, I know. You all know that. But let me, let me tell you why this matters. And let me tell you why I'm actually part of this community. Let me, let me clue you in on a little bit of mission and, and, and how God wants the church to look in the And so Jesus doesn't say that. He says, and so I think if Jesus was here today um, in Orange County in a post-Christian world where um, maybe we can edit this part of the podcast. You all know every church will say we're a church and we're family, right? Every church will claim to have that value. Every single church will tell, say that about themselves, but then the next moment they're firing their youth pastor because he can't grow the youth ministry. Or, or, or they're running someone out of town because they did something that wasn't a part of the values of the church, right? And so we have to be very careful to say like, we're family, but then quickly kick people to the curb because that's not what family does, right? Family doesn't kick people to the curb when they disagree. Family keeps opening their arms up. So I think if Jesus were to take a little peek into the church, um, I think there are things about it he would love, and be amazed at. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of great churches out there. But I think Jesus would speak against this in a second. And say, we've come so far. The church is supposed to be a family. You're supposed to invest yourself into the, like Just like a healthy family you would invest your normal self into. But you just attend it. It's just something. You just go to it. There's no connection with the people even there. Right? In fact, the only connection that you may have is when you're 
saying the things that you don't like about it or whatever it is or you know like so i think there are a lot of things that jesus so here's my plea anyways i think that's okay for you i'm not gonna go off anymore on that tangent here's my plea for our church is that that wouldn't be true here first and foremost right there would be a real investment as we would invest into a healthy family hopefully you have a picture of that somewhere in your life but that you would invest and see reunion as your church that's like if there was anything i would ever want um for you to experience in this church is not just an organization you attend it's actually no this is my family it's what tian just shared a few minutes ago being vulnerable and saying hey i'm a family member and i'm hurting can you pray for me and for us to grieve with other family members or to celebrate with other family members because when the arm is hurt, the whole body hurts. Right? And so reunion is more than just another community. Are you tracking with me? It's more than that. We're more than just another community vying for your attention. Reunion is your family. And, th- and can I just tell you, so many of you already live this out. So many of you are great examples of this. This is not me standing up here saying, this is not happening. We got to get something right. This is me affirming a culture that's already there. Okay? Because this is how reunion planted. For those of you that are around four or five years ago, um, we planted like this. We planted as a family. And we started... We started just by having dinner parties, right? And, and spending a lot of time together. And I heard person after person say, I've just never experienced family like this. I've never experienced community like this. This place is so life-giving, right? And so this is, this is how we were founded. This is, this is how we got started. And so I, my hope before I go any further is that you would know um, my heart for you and for this community is that this would be and I want all the junk that comes with it. I want it all. Bring it. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want the perfect. I don't want any of that. I just want it to be family. And so what does, what does family mean? What does the church as family even mean? Isn't that a great question? Because so many, there are definitions that we could put on that by our own personal experiences. Because family for every single one of us was different. Right? So there's not one clear-cut definition of family. So the only way I know how to answer that question is to define it the way that Jesus did. Okay? Jesus' perfect plan. Uh, Jesus being the Son of God has an image to what the church's family looks like, and he actually shares it in Mark chapter 3. And I think it's really easy to miss. Look at verses 13 through 15. Please. I've been told I have to start saying more. (laughs) Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. Really interesting. He goes here. He appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. And he appointed the 12. This is different than anything else Jesus has ever done before. And there are three things here um, that, that Jesus tells us about church as family. And it comes through his familiar relationship with these 12 apostles. And so Jesus says, hey, community, reunion church, you want to be a church that's a family? Here are these three things that you can invest yourselves into. And so I want to look into those three things. It's going to be intimacy, calling, and producing fruit, okay? And I'm going to do my best in the next 15 minutes to unpack that. We'll see. Intimacy, number one. Jesus said he summoned 12 to what? Be with him. Even Jesus needed to have people with him. Isn't that fascinating? Why in the world do we think otherwise? Why in the world do we think we can function independently without people? Why in the world do we think we can do everything on our own when Jesus, the Son of God, 
perfect and blameless, needed people with him. Needed people to walk with him through life. This all happens on the heels of of this master plan for Jesus to be crucified, to be executed. You saw that, right? Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, and the plan from the community was to kill Jesus as a result of that. And so instead of Jesus running away, isolating himself, getting angry, I'll show you. First thing he did was he escaped, and he summoned people around him to be with him, to comfort him to shoulder some of the burden with him. And so Jesus needed people around him to keep him moving forward. He needed people around him in good times and in bad. And both of those things, the good and the bad, by the way, seem to happen simultaneously. I already referred to it. Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand. Praise the Lord. And now there's a plan um, going about how he might be killed. Those things happened at the same exact time time so if jesus sought out life-giving relationships if he needed people around him in all circumstances why do why do we believe family that we can do it on our own why do we keep telling ourselves that lie why do we have a hard time letting people in to our lives i i need people around me I need people to spur me on. I need people to encourage my faith. I need people to challenge me in new ways. I need people just to accept me for, for who I am. This, this is, no matter what, by the way, right? No matter what, because guess what? Family never turns their back on one another, right? Even in disagreements. So, so what about you? My hunch is that you know you need the same thing. The biblical definition of intimacy is, is to know. You can even take another spin even further to, to know and to be known. It's the Hebrew and Greek word for intimacy. Intimacy is so much more. In our culture, by the way, can I just speak to it? Um, you know, you, whatever it is, TV, culture, you know, define intimacy with like physical expression, right? Were you intimate tonight? Do you guys talk that way still? No, like, you know, like, so we, we, we attach intimacy with like physical expression when, when the root of the word even has nothing, nothing to do with physical expression. It may lead to that, right? But it's, it's a familiar word. It's, it's a relationship word that you experience with humanity, not just with a per, not just with a husband, wife, boyfriend, girl, whatever it is right? Intimacy is, is a relation. It's a familiar word. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve, when they were naked before God. You know, that, that picture, like why they were naked? There are a few reasons. There was no H&M. There was nothing like that. They had no clothes. Like there's, there, that wasn't there. So that's the obvious, right? But the point of that story is to show that there was no shame before God. So like, God knows me. I know God. I've got nothing to hide, including my body. I hope that's not spurring anything. Whatever. Okay. But that's, this is what intimacy looks like in a relationship with God. This is what relationship looks like with each other. It means you know me because I don't hide and I know you because you don't hide. Right? As soon as hiding starts to happen in relationships, we just kick intimacy out the back door. So as soon as you feel the need to hide or to cover up the moment we sacrifice relationship and intimacy, and here it is, now we're getting further and further away as a church family of what kind of church God actually intended the church to be. It it all starts with intimacy. So when Jesus gathered his disciples around him to be with him, so important. Don't miss this. He didn't just gather his disciples around for company. It wasn't, let's just play some video games. Let's just shoot the breeze. Let's watch a game. Um, whatever it was. That's not, that's not what Jesus was doing. He's gathering people around him to know and to be known. This is, this is completely different. Too many people today, Christians, not Christians. 
Jesus followers, not Jesus followers. Only understand relationships, please don't miss this, in the form of company. That's where relationship is. Company. When, when the reality and what Jesus shows us is that relationships ought to be understood in the form of intimacy. To know and to be known. It's a whole new ball game. It's a whole another level. And so since our capacity for relationships really begins and ends with company, as a result, shallow relationships are prevalent amongst all different forms of community you might follow yourself in. Are you with me on this? I'm not speaking against every community you're a part of. I'm not making the case that you have no depth of relationship, no intimacy everywhere. I'm talking from a general basis in culture. Are you with me? So I hope you understand my lens here. And so shallow relationships are the norm. They're prevalent everywhere, in the church and outside the church. And Jesus wants so much more for us. He wants Mike, 35-year-old Mike, as I am today, not to just experience intimacy with Nathan. He wants, he wants me to experience intimacy with Linda. Right? Yeah, and my dad. Like, this is, this is, this is what he wants. So it's, it's not just like, hey, find the people that you like click with. Find the people that you get. Find the people that you understand. And shun the people that you don't, that you don't agree with politically. Whatever it may be, he's saying, regardless of the size of your church, family, intimacy is something to seek. And if there's somebody in your church family that you don't feel like intimacy is there, well, why don't you, why don't you step into that? Hey, why don't you work on that? Why don't you lean into that? Make some efforts. Intimacy. I'm going to stop there and keep going. Number two, calling. This is another thing that Jesus says. Jesus sees and defines family, church family, in the sense of calling. And so he, he, he gathers them, not for company, for intimacy. And then he says what? Hey, go preach. Now that word, yes, there's a, there's a literal word to that. Um, uh, I, I'm slipping my mind, but the word is evangelism, right? Um, and it, it literally means a communication of your faith, sharing the hope that you have in Jesus. So yes, there's a communication element to this for sure. But the point is, and I think what Jesus wants us to see, is that he gathered his apostles around him to know and be known, but he also gathered them around to go do stuff, right? And so this, this kind of breaks the church family outside of its walls a little bit, right? Like if, 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 if the church is only family for the family members, then we're missing it. The church should be family for anybody that wanders off the street. The church should be family for anybody that's never stepped foot in the church before. Anybody that walks in the doors of a church as Jesus is defining it, ought to leave that place compelled. Ought to leave that place saying, I've never experienced love like this. I've never experienced intimacy like this before. That is what the church offers the culture, not what's happening today with the church. Are you with me? And so, yes, namely it's preach the gospel, but it's to go out and do stuff. But but Jesus, why is he saying this? Jesus knew that intimacy is for everyone. In order for anyone to experience intimacy in relationships, they would have to get brought into the family. There has to be an invitation in. The family has to be so compelled with what is happening in, in, in the house that they want to gather their friends, right? Um, this is true. I don't know what your growing up situation was like. Did you have that friend who was just an inviter into their family, right? Like... Dinners, parties, you had that house. When I grew up, it was our house. My sisters, we were always inviting people in. And what was the thing that was always said? Mom and dad, you guys are here as my, my accountability on this. This is better than my own family. <laughs> like this is, this is what family looks like? Like this is, this is what family, you guys enjoy? Is like, you know what I'm saying? And so there's a human element to it, but it's also in the church as well. And, and, and so I think to get brought in, but there are a lot of words that the church has attached to what Jesus is getting here. And the primary one um, is evangelism. And just a caveat, um, I know that's a church-friendly word, and we ought to do it. I believe in it, but I hate it. I hate that word. Um, specifically because it conjures up in, in me, I'll say me, in us first them mentality, right? 
Like there's like a there's a there's like a, a barrier between us and them. And if I don't go to them, then their souls are lost forever, right? And so when when we might as well just remove God out of the whole thing. And so now it's on me. Well, God's doing something bigger here, right? And so I know that there's good meant in that word, but the way that that word has spun itself into American culture, American church today does irritate me quite a bit. I prefer to use the word hospitality there. I think to me, that's a more fresh word. Um, Evangelism was fresh 2,000 years ago. Um, But today, I think the word for our culture, the word for our church today is hospitality. And, And to me, hospitality all it is in the most simple form is sharing life with someone else. Life on life, right? One-on-one, five-on-five, whatever it is. It's sharing life together around a table. Whatever that table is. Literally, it could be your table in your dining room kitchen. It could be the water cooler at work. It could be whatever that table is. Right? That's the beautiful thing about the New Testament church is that Jesus kicked them out the door and said, go. Right? The temple's beautiful and it's wonderful, but we don't need it anymore. Let's keep it. <laughs> don't hit me wrong. But we don't need it. Go. Right? Preach. Practice hospitality. Sit around a table. Get to know one another. Speak into each other's lives. And so, again, I can say a lot on this, but the vision of reunion, I'll say this, has always been about hospitality. Again, our church was birthed out of dinner parties. It was birthed around meals, birthed around invitations. This is something that we started, not just because it was fun and invitational, but because Jesus told us to do it. And so Jesus said, which I'm paraphrasing, if you want to reach the broken, if you actually want to see people come into the abundant life with me, go throw a party. Invite them over, the poor, the broken, the marginalized, um, whoever that may be. Share your life with them. Give them the VIP treatment, right? And just trust them with the rest. You're not the Savior. I'm the Savior. You can't transform hearts. I'm the one that transforms hearts. So Jesus just says, just be hospitable. Open up your life to people, whoever that, you know, wherever that is. Um, another Trader Joe's story for you. You're going to get a lot of these because it's fresh in my life right now. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's fresh in my life and God's doing a lot of my life um, spiritually there. Um, and my, my relationship with God's being expanded so much as a result of Trader Joe's. But um, uh, part of our shift um, at Trader Joe's is, um, for a whole shift, eight-hour shift, they don't just put you on register. They don't just put you on stock or in the back room or anything like that. You actually, along with all the managers, there's no hierarchy there. Like you all just, every hour you bounce to somewhere else, right? And um, you're moving around. You're getting, you know, your hands on all the product. You're moving from the pushing carts to the back, whatever it is. You're everywhere. Well, up, I've only been at Traders for almost, well, three months now. And my least favorite job there has been cash register. And so, like, of course, I'll do it with a smile. I'm the new guy. Uh, but every time, I kind of go up there, kind of just like, <laughs> right? Like, and depending on if you work the morning shift, um, there are some grumpy rumpies there. But if you, between the night shift, there, it tends to be like a cooler, vibier type person that comes in that, like, you know. And so, like, depending on when you're working, where you're working, you can get grumpy rumpies. All right? Is that not a word? It's my word. It's what I call my kids. Um, and so register is not all that bad, but it can be right. There could be people that, you know, and so that, 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 that experience or that fear of like, Oh no, I'm going to get like a really, I'm going to get someone to like complain about something. I'm going to get written up. Like if it was going to happen, it's going to happen at the register. Something's going to happen there. I don't know everything quite yet. So, Oh no. So there's always that anxiety in me that I would just like rather avoid. Right. And so, but one day I had this uh, realization is actually why I was, um, at the register and I was ringing somebody up, cash them out. And then there was a lady standing like kind of right here, older lady. And she was just, I'm not kidding. She was just doing this. Gone. Like, gone. Like I don't. And so I said to her, I'm like, ma'am, where are you? We're like, and she's like, Oh, huh? 
I'm like, were you somewhere nice? <laughs> like, and she's like, it's just been a, a really, really rough day. And I'm just mentally, physically exhausted. It was just one of those. And all of a sudden, it was like that, I don't want to call it a Holy Spirit moment, but there was that awakening in my eyes to be like, oh my gosh, this is my table. Like the cash register table is my table. I've been counting. I get somewhere between 100 and 150 people in one hour come through my line. That's 150 different stories, different experiences, different things. They're coming and going from who, who knows where, and they're with me for three minutes, potentially a minute. So what's that interaction going to look like? What's that conversation going to look like? It could look like 99.9% of everybody, all the other workers at Trader Joe's, get them out of here, don't really care about you, right? Whatever that may be, that's the temptation. But for me, it was like, oh my gosh. I have a small moment to encourage. I have a small moment to brighten somebody's day in some way. And I'm learning. What's your table? What, what does God put in your life already? Where in your life is it easy to brush off and to move past and denounce? Maybe that's the very place that God actually wants you to embrace hospitality. Lastly, for the church as a family, Jesus, he, he, he tells them after they just go preach, practice hospitality. You know what he says? He takes it to a different, he goes, oh, now go drive out demons. Go drive them out. Now in, in first century Judaism, this was a normal thing. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's everywhere. Demons are everywhere. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. People are walking possessed. Um, this is, so Jesus isn't telling them something that was shocking. It's only today that those words seem shocking to us or out of character or inappropriate or that doesn't happen anymore. Right? And, and so like today we have medicine and we have mu much other ways to actually identify things and call things physical, but maybe they are spiritual. That's a whole other message. I won't even go down that table. But Jesus is so specific with driving out demons because he knows they're real. And they have a presence in our world that need to be fought against. And, and again, I believe that this is still true today. Um, I believe that there is a spiritual battle going on for my soul. I believe there's a spiritual battle going on for your soul. Um, if there's love in the world, which I think I hope we would all agree with, that means that there's also evil in the world, which I think we would all agree with. And so each of these two reality, realities have an origin they come from. There's a place that love comes from. There's a place that evil comes from, right? The Apostle John tells us where love comes from in 1 John 4. He says what? God is love. You want to find love, if you want to know love, know God. Okay? And then he also, same Apostle John who Jesus commissioned out, went to go write in Revelation in 16 on the island of Patmos before he dies, that there are demonic, that's what he says, there are demonic spirits who travel the world performing miracles so that they can wage war against God. This, this is what the Apostle John, the same, one of the same people that Jesus just commissioned out to go, to preach, to drive out demons, this is about, John's about to die here. He's reminding the church. Oh, don't, don't stop with what Jesus said for us to do. go do. Don't be a church that just ignores it. Don't be a church that brushes it under the rug or gives it another name other than what it really is. Drive them out. Kick them out of town. Pursue it. So what do we do with this? Jesus said, pray them out in my name. And what we see with the man with the shriveled hand, we see after that story, right, people that were demon-possessed were flooding to Jesus. And the demons were falling out of people onto the ground just in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is, is letting the church know, the family know, that in the name of Jesus, demons stand no chance. They literally flee at the name of Jesus. Demons and Jesus cannot coexist together. Okay? So Jesus says, drive them out. 
And I really do think the church today needs to wake up to the idea of demons. I don't want to over-spiritualize this. I don't want to leave it in. I want to give it too much time other than just rising to our attention that demons are still real, but they're nothing to be afraid of. They're nothing to be afraid of. If you ever feel like you have a demon in your house, if you ever feel like a demon is tormenting you or a friend or a family member, pray it out right there in Jesus' name. You can do it on your own. I'm happy. I've had people in our church in the past call me and I've gone over and prayed with them. The worst thing we can do as a church family is to ignore the demons in our life and to to just act like they don't exist because they're real. And and here's here's what Jesus is uh, saying. This isn't just a call to like cast out, drive out demons. More so the heart of Jesus here, and this is beautiful. It's actually an invitation to freedom. So he's not just like, go freak people out and go drive out demons. And people are going to be like, wow. No, no. He's saying the heart behind this is freedom. It's to see people who are being held captive by demons. They may be believers, by the way. Step into freedom. Freedom in Christ is what the gospel is all about, isn't it? This is what Jesus wants. Seeing people setting people free from sin and death. In other words, from anything that holds your heart captive, Jesus wants to drive it out of town in his name. And so a question I have for our church family, and I say this out of love, what demons are you battling today? Discouragement? Fear? Loneliness? Depression? Anxiety? Exhaustion, pride, the list can go on and on and on, can it? Oftentimes, this is the way that Satan will use demons to torment our lives. We'll come through those subtle things, right? People are still possessed today, but the majority of us, especially in our culture today, will be tormented by demons in these ways. And they'll come after you subtly. And the goal, again, is your soul. It's to wage a war within you that causes you to step back from the family of God. That's what, that's what the devil wants to do with my life. He wants to use those things to separate us. And I want to encourage you this morning to identify that thing. We've all got it. No one here um, is out of reach of demons plenty of pastors that are tormented by them daily. So if you are being tormented by a demon in some way, know that it's not because God's punishing you. Know because that's not because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's probably actually the opposite. You are a threat to Satan. And he wants to torment your life to keep you away from the things that God has for you. Okay? If you're not, Experiencing or being tormented by demons, praise God. Don't want that. Don't think that you're doing something wrong for a demon to not want to torment your life. Um, do, like, if you're not, praise God. Tell God, thank you. And now he wants to get on and use you in ministry and calling and come along those people that are. Okay? And so for us to experience an abundant life of faith and love, that Jesus has for us within the church. I have to say yes to his invitation to freedom. Church family. One of intimacy, one of calling, and it's one of freedom. This is my hope and pray for you. Let's 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 stand together and we'll close with a song. Or we uh recognize that um, your word never fails, um, that it's always challenging into our lives, that you speak into our lives, that your word is alive and active. And so I'm trusting God that whatever work that it is that you want to do with our church family this morning, um, that you would do it. If there's somebody here that, um, man, relationship for them has just been company. Or my prayer 
for that person this morning is that they would experience intimacy in this family. If there's, if there's someone here, Lord, that has no idea what their calling is, or that even that word kind of conjures up um, fear or disobedience or whatever, whatever may come, God, I pray that you would bridge that gap into hospitality practical ways to share life with people. And would your Holy Spirit show us how that could be done? For those in here that, man, they're battling some demons. One, maybe more than one. And through the subtle ways that we've talked about this morning. Lord, you are a God that leans in. You are a God that wants to set us free And so, Lord, we believe and we declare with one voice that one moment with you changes everything. One moment with you brings complete healing and freedom in Jesus' name. So would you set our church family free from sin and death, from brokenness, and would you bring life in Jesus' name? Lord, would you use this church family to be a witness in this city, in this county, in this world? We're already grateful for the footprint that you've allowed this community, this family to make, but we know you're not done. And so Lord, I pray for health within this space, within this family, so that you can use us for the ways that you want to use us for whenever you want to use us. We'll wait on you, Lord. We'll wait on you, but we'll get on with what you've called us to do in the process. And so in this moment of worship, I pray, Lord, that that you would lift our eyes to you, that we're not singing to a God that's dead, but a God that's alive. A God that has things for us. A God that enjoys being with us. And so, Lord, would these words that we sing join in with what the angels are singing in your presence right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.